Hi, listeners. Our second book reading episode of the summer will feature Dr. Herman Ponzer's book, Burn. The excerpt is a courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio and is read by PJ Auckland. After the reading, we'll hear a rerun of Dr. Ponzer's interview on the show talking about his new book. Enjoy! The lions woke me up around two in the morning. The sound wasn't loud so much as big, like the moaning hydraulics of a garbage truck interrupted by the coughs and grunts of an idling Harley Davidson. My first hazy, sleepy reaction was a kind of grateful joy. Ah, the sounds of wild Africa. I stared up through the gossamer mesh roof of my tent at the stars overhead felt the night breeze pushing through the dry grass and thorny acacia trees and up against the tent's thin nylon walls, carrying the lion's chorus. I felt fortunate to be there, camped in my little tent in the middle of the vast East African savanna, a place so remote and untrammeled that there were lions just a few hundred yards off. How lucky was I? Then a pang of adrenaline and fear. This wasn't a zoo or some tourist safari. Those lions weren't pretty pictures in a National Geographic magazine or a PBS nature show. This was real life. A gang of heavily muscled, 300-pound feline killing machines was a short stroll away, and they sounded anxious, maybe even hungry. Of course, they could smell me. After days of camping, I could smell myself. What was my plan when they came for my soft American carcass, the warm triple creme brie of human flesh? I wondered how close they'd get before I heard them in the tall grass, or if the end would come unannounced, an explosion of claws and hot angry teeth crashing through walls of the tent. I kept thinking it through, trying to be rational. Judging by where the sound was coming from, the lions would have to walk past Dave's and Brian's tents first. I was door number three in this particular game of chance. That meant one in three odds of being eaten by lions tonight. Or if one was a glass two-thirds full kind of person, a 67% chance of not being eaten. That was a comforting thought. Plus, we were with the Hadza, on the outskirts of their camp, and nobody messes with the Hadza. Sure, hyenas and leopards would occasionally slink past their grass huts at night looking for scraps or unattended babies, but the lions seemed to keep their distance. The fear began to dissipate. Drowsiness seeped back in. I'd probably be fine. Besides, if one had to be eaten by lions, it seemed preferable to be asleep at the time, at least until the last possible moment. I fluffed up the pile of dirty clothes I was using for a pillow, adjusted my sleeping pad, and went back to sleep. It was my first summer working with the Hadza, a generous, resourceful, and badass people who live in small camps scattered about the rugged, semi-arid savanna around Lake Aasi in northern Tanzania. Anthropologists and human biologists like me 
like to work with the Hadza because of how they make their living. The Hadza are hunter-gatherers. They have no agriculture, no domesticated animals, no machines or guns or electricity. Each day they wrest their food from the wild landscape around them, using nothing but their own hard work and guile. Women gather berries or dig wild tubers from the rocky soil with stout pointed sticks, often with a child on their back in a sling. Men hunt zebra, giraffe, antelope, and other animals, with powerful bows and arrows they fashion themselves from branches and sinew, or chop open trees with small axes to extract wild honey from beehives built in the hollows of limbs and trunks. Kids run and play around the grass huts of camp or head out in groups to get firewood and water. Elders either head out foraging with the other adults, they are remarkably spry even into their 70s, or stay back at camp to keep an eye on things. This way of life was the norm worldwide for over two million years, from the evolutionary dawn of our genus, Homo, through the invention of farming just 12,000 years ago. As farming spread and brought towns, urbanization, and eventually industrialization in its wake, most cultures traded in their bows and digging sticks for crops and brick houses. Some, like the Hadza, held on proudly to their traditions, even as the world around them changed and began to encroach. Today, these few populations are the last living windows into humanity's shared hunter-gatherer past. Along with my good friends and fellow researchers, Dave Reichlin and Brian Wood, and our research assistant, Fides, I was in Hadzaland, as we casually refer to their homeland in northern Tanzania, to learn how the Hadza lifestyle is reflected in their metabolism, the way their bodies burn energy. It's a simple but incredibly important question. Everything our bodies do, growing, moving, healing, reproducing, requires energy, and so understanding how our energy is spent is the first foundational step in understanding how our bodies work. We wanted to know how the human body functions in a hunting and gathering society like the Hadza, where people were still an integral part of a functioning ecosystem, with a lifestyle still similar in important ways to that of our deep past. No one had ever measured daily energy expenditure, the total number of calories burned per day, in a hunter-gatherer population. We were eager to be the first. In the modernized world, far removed from the daily work of acquiring our food with our bare hands, we pay little attention to energy expenditure. If we think about it at all, we think of the latest diet, our workout plan, whether we've earned that donut we crave. Calories are a hobby, a nugget of data on our smartwatches. The Hadza know better. They understand intuitively that food and the energy it holds are the fundamental stuff of life. Each day they confront an ancient and unforgiving arithmetic. Acquire more energy than you burn or go hungry. We woke up with the sun still orange and weak on the eastern horizon. The colors of the trees and grass washed out in the diluted morning light. Brian started a cooking fire in our small, Hadza-style three-stone hearth and set a pot of water on to boil. Dave and I milled around bleary-eyed, needing caffeine. Soon enough, we were all drinking hot mugs of Afri-Cafe instant coffee 
and spooning up plastic bowlfuls of instant oatmeal and jelly. We discussed research plans for the day. We'd all heard the lions during the night and joked nervously about how close they sounded. Then, sauntering through the tall dry grass, came four Hadza men. They weren't coming from camp, but from the opposite direction, from the bush. They were each carrying large, misshapen loads over their shoulders, and it took me a moment to recognize what it was. Legs, haunches, and other blood-matted parts of a big, freshly killed antelope. The men knew we liked to keep track of the foods they brought back to camp, and they wanted to give us a chance to record this kill before splitting it up among the families in camp. Brian snaps to it, clears off the weigh scale, and locates the foraging returns notebook, striking up a conversation in Swahili, our common language with the Hadza. Thanks for bringing these by, says Brian. But where the hell did you get a huge antelope at six in the morning? It's a kudu, say the Hadza guys, grinning. And we took it. Took it, asks Brian. You guys heard the lions last night, right? Say the Hadza guys. Well, we figured they were up to something, so we went and checked it out. Turns out they had just killed this kudu, so we took it. And that was it. Another day in Hadzaland. A banner day, in fact, starting off with the rare prize of big game in all of its fatty and protonaceous glory. In camp later that morning, gnawing on roasted strips of kudu, hearing the story of how Dad and his buddies chased off a pride of hungry lions in the dark to bring home food, the Hadza kids would understand an important and timeless lesson. Energy is everything, and it's worth risking everything to get it. Hey, Chris! Hey, Kara. Today's guest is academically related to me, much like our previous guest, who is academically related to me. And the two books that we talk about then and now have a lot in common, actually, right? I know. I'm feeling some circularity here. And much like so with the much. last episode, I'm wondering, well, two things. I'm wondering who our listeners are, right? Mm. Like when we have these sort of like deep dives into ourselves. I wonder if people have any freaking idea who we're talking about. Because we sort of talk as though like we have the same five listeners who've been listening all along. I think we're talking to Malika is what I feel like we're doing. We're always talking uh, to Malika. Malika is your target audience. I think so. I think so. I'm just trying to think of someone who has been there all along, who we both know, listens, and is like super enthusiastic. Or or somebody like that, right? And, somebody and I, not I, our producers. <laughs> Because they were long-time listeners before they became that's our true, producers. That's true. That's true. Maybe the producers. Anyway, we should totally start actually introducing today's show and ourselves. How about we do that? So I'm Chris Lynn. I'm a human biologist, of all things, at and, the University of Alabama. And I am Kara Akabak. I am also a human biologist, and I'm at the University of Notre Dame. Sometimes I call myself a human evolutionary biologist. Sometimes. Does it depend on the day, how you're feeling, what, what makes you change? Uh -huh. Okay. Uh, who I'm talking to, usually. That's the know your audience, know your goal. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so today's guest, as we alluded with our convoluted intro, is Dr. Herman Ponser, who was my graduate advisor, so there's our disclaimer for the day, is an associate professor of evolutionary anthropology and an associate research professor of global health at Duke University. Uh, he investigates the physiology of humans and apes to understand how ecology, lifestyle, diet and evolutionary history affect metabolism and health. He is also interested in how ecology and evolution influence musculoskeletal design and physical activity. 
And his field projects focus on small-scale societies, including hunter-gatherers and subsistence farmers in Africa and South America. Uh, and his lab research is very highly focused on energetics and metabolism. And we are interviewing him today to talk about his new book, which drops next week, March 2nd. Uh, and the new book is called Burn, The New Science of Human Metabolism. Welcome, Herman, to the Sausage of Science. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am so tickled to be here. <laughs> this You are one of the folks that we've been meaning to get on for ages um, and it took a new book for us to finally send that email and invite you on. So Herman, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the podcast, but we kind of start the same way with every single interview. And it's learning a little bit about your origin story of how you got interested into anthropology and why you decided to pursue it as a career. So I had no idea what I wanted to do when I went to college. And so I, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania out in the sticks, Hersey, Pennsylvania, shout out. If you've seen Groundhog Day, we played Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania in a high school ball. So, you know, out, out there. And um, I applied to one college because that's what you did. If you were going to go to college, you applied to one because why do more than that? And I went to Penn State, which was awesome. And I had no idea what I wanted to do. But um, my fresh, freshman fall, first semester, I took a, an amazing class with prof named Jeff Curland and another prof named Warren Morrill, which is this Anthropo-DH, this, this freshman seminar on human evolution. And um, Jeff Curland was a biological anthropologist. Uh, Warren Morrill was a cultural anthropologist of the old school. And it was completely mind-blowing to think about humans that way and to think about our past that way. And, you know, these guys were there obviously doing this for a living. And that kind of blew my mind that you could do that for a living. And so... I jumped into anthropology because I had nowhere else to go. I really loved it and had no other distractions. And so that's what I did academically in college. And it turns out, you know, anthropology, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know this, but if you're, if you go into anthropology early in an in a undergrad career, you're done with all the courses by like, you know, sophomore year. <laughs> Because it's not like pre-med where, you know, you've got to have a million classes. And it's so, you know, by end of sophomore year, beginning of junior year, I was doing, uh, you know, taking graduate seminars and because we were outside of other classes to take at Penn State. And it was such a great program. And I was working in Alan Walker's lab of, of Black Skull and Turkana Boy fame. I was working in his lab, which was so fun. Uh, Leslie Husko was a grad student there at the time. I got to know her. Roshna Wunderlich was a postdoc over in the biomechanics. Mark Stone King was there. Pat Draper, Pat Johnson, Jim Wood, so many fantastic folks. Mike Gervin was my RA my freshman year at Penn State. So it was like, you know, looking back, I didn't have any choice, I don't think. And then I went to Harvard for grad school, which was fantastic and really fun. I was going to work with Richard Rangham to do chimp stuff. I ended up working with uh, Dan Lieberman doing more biomechanics kind of stuff, but still interested in, in ecology and and energetics and that's that's the origin story there everything else is uh that's a really familiar as you know because you and i started our relationship as rivals between the university of michigan and penn state university that's right uh, but I came across a similar issue in undergrad that I took all the classes available. So I just started taking grad school courses at Michigan. Yeah. And the same thing too, you know, big names in our field, Adam Van Arsdale, Jeremy De Silva, uh, Robin Nelson, like they were TAs or RAs for, for my classes, which is, you know, a yeah. crazy thing to look back on. And yeah. I always still feel like a child in their presence. Uh, Adam at Arsdale, I, I got to know him at Demonisi, those six summers I spent doing it in Demonisi. So that's a different relationship. But anyway, he, what, a, what a fun guy. And Jerry, of course, is great, too. Oh, they're all great. I don't know Robin as well, but of course, big names. That's right. Wow. That, that's neat. And it's also, 
it reinforces uh, 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 one of the tropes that Kira and I come back to, which is that the field is small and there are a couple hubs and it's really easy to meet everyone. But if you're not at one of those hubs, it's easy to feel like it's bigger and that you're more. But um, I yeah. can assure everyone that it is merely a half a step sideways and you're there. So here we all are. And uh, I want to zoom from that all the way up into where we are right now, which is writing this book, right? So <laughs> yeah. we, we have a book coming out on March 2nd, I think. That's right. In yeah. print and Audible, as I discovered, because they wouldn't let me listen to it on Audible ahead of time. Mm. And yet, listening to it robotically, it is still an excellent book. So congrats. I consider that the litmus test. If you can listen wow. to the robotic voice and it, and it holds your attention, you've got a 500 copy seller. I, I passed the Alexa test or something like that. That's something, great. Something like that. So, <laughs> so, so, so a couple things, right? One, as I'm reading your book, I love the personal piece, walking mm -hmm. us through a little bit of your own history, right? There's some autobiography there as mm -hmm. well as introduction to the field. I'm going to be super honest. I find myself chafing because I have a book out for reviews right now where people tell me to stop talking like an idiot and to sound smarter. And I love <laughs> I, so I love it when I hear the balance of people being just very, very normal the way they would yeah. talk in class. So I'm going to push back on that and say, Burn drops, it talks about pizza. It complains about what it doesn't know in the middle of talking to the Hadza, right? When they ask, yeah. what did they ask about that you're like, shit, we should know that. How does, how does the sound get in the radio? That's right. Yeah, yeah. that was a mind blower right there. And you yeah. know what's funny is all, and, I, and just to say, all those personal stories are, are absolutely true, as, as true as I can remember them. I won't claim to have perfect memory on that stuff. People, might, people involved might have slightly different versions of some of that, some of those stories. But yeah, they, those are really fun to be able to tie in. So, I mean, I'm getting to a question here, but what I'm, what I'm getting at is, I don't know if it's inside baseball for those of us who are in the field and how those stories really, for those of us who know a little bit about the field sites, like they really bring yeah. us in in a way that I find super, super pleasurable. Or if those are the kinds of books I read that actually made me want to go into the field to begin with. So I, I'm predisposed to liking them, but I'm kind of curious as to what made you decide what you're going to write about in this right. book? And, and then sort of like, how do you pick out your your narrative to really get into the granularity of human metabolism, which, you know, yeah. I, I think for some might not be the most fascinating thing to jump into in the world. Yeah, fair enough. Well, you know, I, I can't think of anything more interesting than metabolism. You know, life is a game of turning energy into kids. So if you want to know about biology, you got to know about calories. But we, we can get to that in a second. Um, the question about, you know, how did I decide to write the book the way I wrote it? I love the first person accounts you get of, of people doing science. You know, when I read Neil Shub and Inner Fish, um, the parts of the book that I love, you know, it's a great book. The parts of the book I love the best are the one he's talking about himself doing the science, being in the field. Um, you know, why zebras don't get ulcers, Sapolsky, what a great, you know, but the, I find the most compelling stuff, the stuff that's firsthand, you know, and what sealed it for me was, when I first started trying to do this kind of writing, I had a conversation with Kate Wong, who I actually knew. She's an editor at Scientific American, wonderful, um, and super supportive, and, and uh, I owe a lot to her. But when I was talking about writing my first piece for Scientific American with her, I was explaining, you know, orang meta orangutan metabolism and human metabolism and how excited I was about it. And she stopped me and said, can you write like that? And I said, I think so, you know? And she says, if you can write it like that, you know? 
that's a winner. And so I don't know if she ever would remember telling me that, but it, it stuck with me that, you know, here I was, we were literally at the bar at an AAPA conference, you know, just, she just wanted to hear what I had to say. She was curious. And so I was talking about it the way I would talk about it at a bar, you know, among, to a friend I've known Kate for a long time. And, and, but she recognized, I think that it's a lot more compelling. Like you say, I, I mean, I hope it's compelling. That's why I tried to do that. I, to, to write the story that way. The other thing I'd say is I, you know, I'm not a science communication trained expert necessarily, but what I think I know about it is that what I've heard people saying, what, what rings true to me is, you know, if you can tell a story that's not just to pad this, the, your time and not just to get people to laugh, but tell a story that actually connects in a serious way, in a, in a meaningful way to what you're talking about, the story is how people remember whatever you have to tell them. And if you don't tell the story, then you know you can get all your facts right, and you can get all that you know academically perfect, and nobody will remember it, and so it never happened, right? If you you know if people don't read the book, it doesn't matter what you write. If people don't remember what you said, it doesn't matter what you said. So I think you know this narrative piece, we, we shy away from it, or like you're you're saying your your reviewers are telling you to stop talking like that. Oh come on! I mean I think you know we know enough about humans to know that humans like stories, and 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 that's how you connect, and that's real. You know that's not padding and fluff. That's real. Um, and so I think you got to do it that way. Thank you. <laughs> so that, yeah, a couple of things with that one, we've had Kate Wong on the show, actually. Oh, Kate's um, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. She's fantastic. And she gave a lot of the tips that you just said that she gave you personally, which are great. And also, I don't know if you know, but we actually interviewed Dan Lieberman last week for his new I book. I did. I saw, okay. well, you know, I do follow <laughs> you guys and I listen when I can. And, um, uh, I saw that he was on, on your show and was excited to hear that. I, I haven't heard his, his talk with you guys yet. But there's, you know, an interesting thread that connects the style of your two books because he's very narrative driven as well. And then we'll get into the evolutionary as well as yeah. the modern data and things like that. And, you know, Chris and I were saying the exact same things of like that narrative really does help push it forward. And if you can get somebody to care about you through your stories, mm. then they're going to start caring about your work. Yeah, uh, it turns out that humans are social animals. I don't know if you guys what? knew that. No. Pretty exciting <laughs> discovery I've made. <laughs> the kind of thing that we feel more and more these days with our isolation yeah. anyway so in your book and this is actually true with with dan's book as well um you talk a lot about your field work with the hadza and your mm. experiences with the hadza and you had started that project maybe by my second or third year in grad school if i remember right around then it was early on i have to think and about what your years were when, when were you at washi i came in at 2007 yeah, yeah. Uh, 2007 was my first year that was and the first rejection i got from nsf for that project Hey, you know, it's always revise and resubmit. How many people get it on the first go around, honestly? I, I don't know. Not many. I Whoever think I've they are, gotten one stop grant. It. I've only gotten one grant on the first go around. Two if you count my grad student. Anyway, mm. but I never knew the backstory to that project as a grad student. Like, I hadn't known that yeah. you would apply to this. I didn't know mm -hmm. about that story. So tell us how this project all kind of came together. Right. Uh, because it's led to so much work and, and so yeah. much interesting data. Yeah. Yeah, um, it, it was a life changer for me. I know uh, that I've got interested in calories and energy expenditure metabolism in grad school because the you know again it, it just seems to be like that's where the rubber hits the road in biology. You know, getting resources from your environment, turning those into offspring. Um, you know, from the, the purely biological side of things, that's that's where all the action is. And so, if you can do that more efficiently, and you can, and, and also you get all sorts of you know, calories are the sort of fundamental universal currency. Right. So if you want to talk to somebody who works in the immune system, but you work in physical activity and somebody else works in the, the brain and 
reproduction, all these tasks, the, the, com the thing they share, right, is energy, right? Because you can, you can only spend the, your calories once. And so you, you, if, I, if we can talk energy, then we can talk across all these systems. And so there's a way to talk about, you know, to not have to focus basically and talk about whatever you think is fun uh, and all these interesting trade-offs um, in, in, a, in a coherent way. So I had focused on energy expenditure and locomotion in graduate school. I developed a model for predicting the energy cost of walking and running from how an animal's uh, locomotor anatomy is shaped. And I had done a lot of testing on that, biomechanics, that kind of stuff. And the idea was always to tie that into the larger energy budget that an organism has. Locomotion energy being one thing and then everything else being everything else. And you could sort of begin to put the, the pie together if you had each of these slices. That approach assumes that if you know what all the slices look like, they add up to make the energy budget. And there you go. And that's how it, you know, it's the, the energy budget is sort of assembled that way. Right. That's the that's the implication of that whole approach. And that's the way I was trained. And that's the way I kind of thought about things. Um, and then as I got into to wash you for my first job out of grad school and I started trying to do that work and kind of doing, you know, I had just gotten to wash you. I didn't have a grant then. Um, and so you're kind of doing a lot of literature review, conceptual work, thinking about what your, your next project is going to be. I realized that we actually had no evidence at all that energy budgets are assembled in that way. And then in fact, it looked a lot more like energy budgets are kind of, they, maybe they're sort of more fixed than we think, or maybe some animals have evolved larger energy budgets or smaller energy budgets. And so the way you really needed to test that kind of holistic view wasn't all the pieces. You needed a measure of the total energy budget altogether. You need to know how many calories you're spending every day, right? What's the size of the budget? Then you can put the pieces into that. So kind of with a switch in the way I was thinking about things. And then I thought, well, okay, well, that's, you know, if, if that's how you want to approach that, then what, what are the numbers out there? What, what's the data say on how humans spend their calories when we're not in an industrialized country, right? Because obviously this is, we have built these weird zoos for ourselves. And just like, you know, uh, we wouldn't think that, that zoo life is, is the total normal ecological life for any species. We wouldn't think that this weird industrialized life is normal for us. We want to know about you know, small scale societies, maybe hunting and gathering societies, horticultural societies. So we wanted to kind of have that touchstone, but that didn't exist. Nobody had measured energy expenditures in the hunter-gatherer group before. And nobody had measured energy expenditures in uh, any of the other great apes before. That was totally terra incognita. Nobody had ever done it. And so, you know, you've got all these old ideas, important ideas that are still important, like expensive tissue hypothesis that says, you know, the chimps and, and humans and gorillas, we have, you, know, you trade off brains for guts. Well, that, that whole approach assumes that we know what the total energy budget is, right? But we didn't actually know what the whole energy budget is. And so that just completely tracked me, you know, let's go out and, and what I thought would be like a two-year project. Let's go and measure some energy budgets, figure out how that works. And, you know, I'm sure it works kind of how we think, but let's just check, basically. And I started writing grants to try with Dave Reichlin uh, to try to get total energy budgets for, we were going to do chimpanzees and humans together because we had a chimpanzee group that we could work with in captivity. It wasn't a wild chimpanzee group. And we, and, and the human group, well, we wanted to know what hunter-gatherer energetics looked like. So we were going to get them, uh, the, sorry, the Hadza. I'm, I'm, in my mind, I know I'm talking about the Hadza. <laughs> um, so we were going to get, you know, measure the energy expenditures with the Hadza and, and do a comparison there. And, and reviewers said, this is too much. This is dumb. Do, uh, do just do the Hadza. And so then we put that in and they say, well, this is not interesting because we know that they're going to have really high energy expenditures. So what are you really going to tell us? Uh, and then we put the grant in again. And I think at least, at least it was at least three submissions. It might've been four. We finally got funded. 
Um, so that, Kara, would have happened as you started 2007 or 8, and, and we started trying to piece things together. That's how that all came together. And then we got the money to go, and Frank Marlowe, good old Frank, who's, who's since passed away, sadly now, but helped set everything up on the Hadza, Tanzania side of things, helped set me up with Brian Wood, who I knew Brian well from grad school, actually, but, you know, he was at a, a place in his career he could do that, too. And yeah, man, that, that's 2009. We spent 2009 getting permits. I can go on forever with this. Sorry. But 2009, we spent getting permits in Dar es Salaam. Finally got into the field to get data in 2010. I remember well the emails of, from the summer of you just sitting in Tanzania yeah. and telling me, I'm literally doing nothing in Tanzania waiting. Send me things to look over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was grim, man. It was grim. But we paid our dues, and um, I guess, if that's even a thing, and uh, we, we finally were able to get there. And, and we're totally shocked by the data, of course, which was really fun. And, and that's, been, that's been my career since. Is, you know, we, we were just we're surprised with what we found with the Hadza. We were surprised when we looked across the other apes. And, you know, nobody knew orangutans were going to have be hypometabolic and, you know, have these tiny metabolic rates. And how cool is that? So, you know, that was really fun. And um, it's just been surprises all over the map. And then I couldn't ask for a luckier thing to have. We go back to that. I want to, I do want to know more about the Hadza. I think it's really important to, to sort of drill down on, on these a little bit. I yeah. do think that the idea of paying dues is important, not because everyone needs to grind it out and pay dues, but it's, it, again, it's nice from outsider perspectives to hear that folks who've had success still struggle to get grant money. So let's talk about that earlier success. Yeah. You have some great stories again about collecting urine from <laughs> great apes in zoo populations. Yeah. Both the method, which is nuts, sounds crazy to listen to, but even more so the findings. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, um, while we were getting shot down at NSF trying to get money to go do work with the Hadza, um, I was able to put together a little bit of money to go work with uh, Rob Shoemaker at Great Ape Trust. And so that was a funny story how that came together. We had, Dave Reichlin and I had worked with a captive population of chimps that were kept by this literally mom and pop facility out in Auburn. That facility was trying to retire their chimpanzees. And we were happy to help try to do that. We felt, we, we actually had mixed feelings about having done work with them anyhow. For, for anybody out there listening, I think it was a mistake to work with a private facility like that. We shouldn't have done it. But anyway, we did. And, and at the end, we were trying to help them retire their chimps. And one of the places that they thought about retiring them to was a place called the Great Ape Trust, which doesn't really exist anymore. It's, it's changed hands. But they, you know, Kanzi the Bonobo and their, and, and their group was there. And, and they had Rob Shoemaker, who now is a, a president at the Indy Zoo. Uh, he had an, an orangutan group there. And it was this crazy, cool place in Iowa where, you know, really amazing facilities and um, so I was there with the chimpanzee folks and, and with Rob and introducing myself and, you know, looking at the facility. And I just thought, wow, could we possibly do, you know, this energetic stuff here? Nobody ever done jubbly labeled water energetics with an ape. And the idea that you would be able to do it seemed far-fetched because you got to like get a lot of buy-in from the apes. <laughs> but yeah, there we were, you know, Rob, who's worked with these orangutans for literally his whole career, you know, over a decade with individual orangutans who he knows like uh, friends almost was able to make it happen, which is crazy, you know, because they, they, he could talk to them, you know, if, if you ever walk, if you ever chance to have a chance to work closely with apes day in and day out and, and zookeepers will tell you this, uh, you know, researchers who work with the same apes will tell you this. And I, I've experienced this to a degree. It is amazing 
how easy it is to slip into this sort of talking with them like they're like little kids, you know? Hey, can you come over here? Oh, hey, show me this. Hey, can you raise your arm, you know? Oh, can you go get that bucket for me, you know? And it's, it really, it, it kind of blows your mind thinking about it. <laughs> this, this human animal um, boundary kind of starts to dissolve away in this interesting way. Okay, let me back up. For those out there who don't know, like the two of you do, what doubly labeled water is and what this method is, what are you doing? Sure, yeah, so any energy expenditure measurement comes down to uh, measuring oxygen consumption and carbon dioxide production or some combination of those things, right? Because that's when you burn calories, that's what you're doing is uh, consuming oxygen and, and producing CO2 while you do that, while your body makes ATP. Okay, so there's this cool technique that was actually figured out in the 1950s, but hasn't became sort of practical to do in the 1980s, which is called the doubly labeled water method. And here's how you do it. You take some water, which is H2O, right? And you replace some of the H's with deuterium. So that's 2H. And you replace some of the oxygens with oxygen 18. And those are stable isotopes. They're not radioactive or anything like that. So it's totally safe. But you can, act, you can use those isotopes like tracers to trace hydrogen flowing through your body and to trace oxygen going through your body. Okay. So you, you give that to somebody drinks like, you know, a time, like not even that anywhere near this much, like a half a cup of water enriched with these isotopes. And, you know, we can, and then if you get a urine sample after they drink it, and then over time after about, for about a week later, you can sort of watch the enrichment of those isotopes go way up after they drink it, and then slowly go down over the course of several days as their body flushes those isotopes out. Okay, now here's the fun part. You flush the hydrogens out, the deuteriums, I should say, the hydrogen isotopes out, uh, with all the water that you lose. So the, all the H2O that you lose, you lose a proportional amount of, of the hydrogens that way. So when you pee or when you sweat or when you, any water that you lose, it's, it's all, the, the H's tell you that. The O's that you lose, you also lose as water because H2O, right? So that's also flushing out as water, but it's also getting flushed out, the O's are, as CO2 that you breathe out because it turns out that about half of the O's in the CO2 that you breathe out are ripped out of your body water. Uh, for reasons that you can you can have a, a chemist on your show and he can explain or she can explain why. Um, doesn't matter. The point is you lose the O's as CO2. So if, I, if I'm watching over time, over that several day period where I'm getting urine samples every now and then and I'm watching you flush these isotopes out of your body by looking at the enrichment in, in the urine samples, I can track the water loss with the hydrogens and I can track the water plus CO2 loss with the oxygens. And if I subtract those from each other, I am left with just the O2, sorry, the CO2 loss. And that tells me how many calories you burn because you can't burn calories without making CO2 and you can't make CO2 without burning calories. And so it's this really physiologically nice and, and uh, precise way of measuring calorie expenditure over about a week or 10 day period. And so then you politely ask chimps in orangs to pee in a cup. Well, so the trick is, right, you can't spill any of the dose when you drink it, any of the dose. A couple drops, you're in trouble. So you have to get them to drink it nicely, right? And then you have to get them to pee in a cup or pee on a tray or something like that. And that's not easy to do. And most uh, apes in most zoos would have, they would have a fine time doing it if you trained them to do it. But, you know, getting the time for a, a zoo staff to be able to train an animal to do that is really hard to do. Um, and so it's, you know, you need to have the right situation. But Rob Shoemaker could talk to the orangs. It was crazy. So it was easy. You know, he was like, just like would pour the water in their mouths. I'm like watching through, you know, watching through the mesh and through the the, uh, the, the, the glass windows around the enclosure to watch him do this. My mind is like melting as he's just like pouring this water into the, you know, into their mouths and 
and getting them to pee in a cup while he holds it. It was crazy. I mean, he was totally safe about it, I should say. He wasn't like in the enclosure with them. He, it was all through a mesh, you know, all through a, a metal wall. But uh, yeah. I'm from Indianapolis and I grew up on the Indianapolis Zoo and the new oh, yeah. facility there is fucking gorgeous and amazing. So I'm having my own sort of like, oh my God, I'm making connections in my head. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think Rocky, who you describe in the book, mm -hmm. the Great Trust, is I think now at the Indy Zoo. I remember taking pictures. Oh, and he must, yeah, and he must be a big old, uh, he must be a man now. He was a boy. <laughs> so I would think, uh, as a non-energetics person, that other non-human great apes would have a way higher energy expenditure than humans. Yeah, that's interesting. Why, why, is, why is that your intuition? My intuit, just because I, I met, I think of them as these, well, I had an undergrad mentor who worked with Washoe and had his teeth knocked out by the extreme strength of these organisms. So I would think because they're, they're so much stronger that they must be burning so much more energy. They are a lot stronger. And for the record, chimps and other primates are terrible pets and don't do it. PSA, the more you know. Uh, but anyway... Just because they're stronger doesn't mean they burn more calories. And in fact, they really burn less. Humans burn more calories for a given body size. You have to correct for body size. Of course, big animals burn more calories. But for if you control for body size, humans burn about 20% more calories every day than chimps and bonobos, who in turn burn, burn more energy every day than gorillas, who in turn burn more every energy every day than orangs. Orangs are, are low, even by primate standards. Primates are a low energy animal. And they, you know it makes sense because they live in these really unpredictable ecologies. You know, they're the only animal, the only ape that doesn't live in groups in, in the wild, uh, which we think is an adaptation to the fact that you know, sometimes there's just not enough food for everybody in a group to eat. Uh, it's a scramble competition avoidance. Um, so, you know, they, we know from work by people like Cheryl Knott and Andy Marshall and, and Mark Layton and Aaron Vogel and other folks that there are times of the year or unpredictably throughout, you know, over the course of, of months and years, where they're like literally peeling bark off of trees and scraping this, you know, is it the xylem or the phloem that's on the inside of the bark? I can never remember, but they're scraping the soft bits of the bark off just for any kind of nutrients, right? Starve, literally starving. Um, so it makes sense that they've evolved this kind of low energy strategy to try to not die. The Great Ape Trust experience was like one of my earliest research experiences that's right. in grad yeah. school. And to re-emphasize that human animal interaction, it was truly stunning how much of our language they understood and took yeah. direction. Like Rob, like, show me your shoulder. And you're like, no, other shoulder. And the, you know, the orangutan just turns around. Like they know left from right and everything else. And I remember being blown away by that as well. And then all the Kanzi yeah. stories that I still tell in class today because students love those. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. Kanzi stories. Where is Kanzi? Still there. So the Still Great Ape okay. Trust is under new management. I don't know. I, I don't know the details. I don't, it's, I haven't kept up, but. Yeah. Uh, but after so, the flood, like things, yeah. like shit hit the fan with yeah. the, the massive yeah. Iowa yeah. floods for the Great Ape Trust. Every time, you know, whenever I talk about communication, I love teaching the intro to human of, and so we end up talking about, you know, evolution of communication, evolution of language a little bit, you know, you kind of hit every topic for five minutes mm -hmm. in an in intro to human of class. But the story I love to tell is that, you know, when I was at the Great Ape Trust walking, you know, touring the facility with Rob the first time I was there, uh, Rob Shoemaker, he's like, oh, do you want to see the Bonobo facility? And absolutely. So we go over and the Bonobo facility, if you remember, you walk in and you're in this kind of like entryway, like this big foyer sort of room. And the entire far wall is glass. And on the other side of that glass is an even bigger room, bigger area for the 
for the bonobos. And the bonobos, they can go outside or inside or whatever, but they happen to be inside from, at that time. And one of the bonobos looks over and sees Rob through the glass and is so excited and runs over to the glass and, and pounds on the glass. And Rob's like, oh, yeah. So he goes over. I forget what the, the bonobo's name was. But this is, the glass is so thick you can't hear through it at all. Right. But Rob goes over and he's go, oh, you want, you know, how's it going? How's... And, and the bonobo runs over to his keypad because they all have these icon boards that they communicated with, runs into this room where the keypad was. And over the loudspeakers, it goes tickle. And then the bonobo <laughs> runs back to the glass and Rob goes, oh, you want to tickle? And the bonobo's there and he pretends to tickle the bonobo through the glass and the bonobo pretends to be tickled. I mean, that's like, what is going on? Mm -hmm. Like the um, abstract, because it's all about the abstract. It's, it's amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the, the, uh, yeah. So, you know, when I, I say like, look, there's no reason to think that apes have human-like language capability. That's a whole different, you know, but we mm -hmm. they don't have the parts of their brain for language like we have language, but they can certainly communicate. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, sort of, sort of breaking apart communication versus language is really, I think, I love to tell that story for that reason, because it's like, oh. Wow, think about all the parts that went on to make mm -hmm. that interaction happen. It was really yeah. fun. And the different connections. So this actually is going to riff a little bit off of Chris. So Chris kind of had, sorry, Chris, but this misconception about what ape metabolism should look like based yeah. on, you know, what they look like, what we think they do, those right. kinds of things. Right. And so as we had talked about already, you know, the Hadza are prominently featured in this mm. book as this hunter-gatherer population. And we all know here that, you know, that can be a dangerous thing when you just kind of use this one population oh, yeah. and folks get these misconceptions that these are a monolith for hunter-gatherer and even worse, you know, human populations 200,000 years ago. Oh, and yeah. so you get these real big concerns and myths about these populations as, you know, being still in time, being frozen in yeah. time and not having evolved. And so yeah. I'm very curious how, if you could tell our audience how you approach that to make sure you avoid those pitfalls and also to make sure because this is a public book, that yeah. the public doesn't get these misunderstandings about the paleo diet, that yeah. kind of you know, evolutionary yeah. lifestyle. Thank you for bringing that up. And I, I hope that I've done my part to try to avoid all those pitfalls. You know, I tried, first of all, when I describe the Hadza, whether I'm talking about them or writing about them, I try to, to emphasize how much that they're, they're, they're like, they're just us. They're just folks. You know, there's a modern group of folks that, that happen to have a, a culture and a lifestyle that's interesting because it holds on to you know particular aspects of, of of a way to make a living that we think are relevant touchstones for how you know, for the past. The analogy I like to use that at least works in the U.S. is that they're kind of like the Amish, right? They know exactly what the outside world's all about. They see it every day. Um, they just prefer not to. Thank you very much. And they would prefer to hold on to their old traditions. And in the same way that you know I might learn something about. 17th century farming by going to an old, you know, uh, what is it called? Uh, old tradition or, oh, there's a particular name for it, uh, Amish community. I might learn something about how it was to farm without the use of modern tools then. That, that would be real. I might really learn something that's real there, but I wouldn't fool myself into thinking that I had walked back in time, right? And I would be on the lookout constantly for changes that have been made to the way that they're doing things that are influenced from modern days. And I would know that even if I hadn't noticed that influence, that it was surely there permeated throughout everything. And so I, that's the best analogy I have. And then I think beyond that, just being kind of open about and trying to describe their day-to-day -day life in ways that, that make them just feel like any other population. And, you know, the way the kids interact, the way the 
you know, adults interact, the way that they're, you know, the fact that we watch Jurassic Park on the laptops in the evenings, you know, that um, I don't know how else to do it than that. But I, I hope, like you say, I hope that we've been able to avoid it. And I think the other thing is to not just talk about them. I mean, they do feature prominently, but I talk about other groups, too. And I talk about the ethnographic more broad, ethnographic record more broadly and how you know, there's this enormous diversity of what it was like to be a hunter-gatherer, even in, in, in the modern ethnographic record. And surely that diversity is even larger as we go back in time. And the diversity is the point. You know, the, I think that's the, the problem with the, the paleo diet stuff. It isn't that it's, that it's incomprehensible or impossible that you could be a hunter-gatherer with a very heavy meat-based diet. Of course you could. It, that happens. In the Arctic, for sure, we, we think we have groups that were very heavily meat-based and, and are hunting and gathering. So it, it isn't that you couldn't do that. It's that, yeah, you could do that. And you could basically be you know, vegetarian as well. And you could be everything in between. And we know that those are possible because we have like actual records of it now, you know, in the historical record from recently. And surely if we go back again, you, you, again, you'd, you'd see even more diversity. So to try to, to make those points clearly, I think, is the best you can do. But you also have to understand, too, having talked about this stuff since 2010 with the media, you know, since the first Hadza stuff came out, there are going to be journalists who are going to talk to you about this stuff or people in the public talk and asking questions or, you know, it, it doesn't have to just be, it can be scientists, too, actually, that just aren't going to hear it. They'll pick what you they want to hear. To yeah. fit within that narrative. Not yeah. like that's going on in U.S. politics at all. Well, exactly. Not relevant exactly. whatsoever. I think that there's a critique to doing this kind of work like I do, and that other, other people do too, in, in human ecology that says, because the work gets used like that, you shouldn't do it, or it's too dangerous to do it. Or, you know, instead of having a clear message about what you find, you need to bury it in this blankets of nuance and caveats and beating people over the head and about how, you know, it's not this cartoon of, of, of the past. And I take a different view, which is that communication requires clarity and um, you do the best you can. And uh, the successful message isn't the one that people aren't going to go out of the ways to misunderstand it. It's the one that gets to, through to the most people. And clearly to the most people. And so I think human ecologists can get a bad rap about some of this stuff or, or maybe need to let themselves off the hook some of the, some of the time. I mean, it's very self-serving, I suppose, to say that. But I, I do think it's true that, you know, that caveman narrative is damaging and it's terrible, but it's going to happen. And it's happening already anyway. So I think we have to try to, to sort of still be doing our science and still be communicating it and try to be a force for good, but not expect that we're going to solve the problem. Today Once the tomorrow. information is out there, it becomes very hard to control the message beyond yeah. you putting yeah. it out there. Uh, and one of them, uh, one message that comes from the book, as well as your research, is relating all of this to the modern obesity epidemic. And you talk about one of my favorite papers. I love using this in my class, the Fothergill et al. paper. That's from the, <laughs> yeah. the, the Kevin Hall group and everything yep. on the Biggest Loser contestants. And that made a big splash because the Biggest Loser was a super, and it might even be coming back now. I can't quite remember. Oh, God. Uh, I know, right? But the Biggest Loser was this massively popular show. And then they got hit with m major controversies with how they treated the contestants yeah. and then, you know, post-show aftercare. They um, all gain the weight back. Every one of them. I, yeah, with like maybe like one exception or something. Yeah. And then they may have even gone far enough to move into like an anorexia, bulimia. I Oy. can't quite remember all the stories yeah. that follow up. Right. Anyway, this this all kind of comes together, this this Fothergill paper and your Hadza research and obesity. And it also has informed the constrained theory for total energy expenditure. And so perhaps you could connect those dots for us a little bit and, you know, bring in that Biggest mm -hmm. Loser contest, the Hadza mm -hmm. data the constraint theory and what it tells us about our health in the here and now. 
Yeah. So, you know, I, I think when I started doing this work a couple, you know, back in the olden days, and I you still see this idea out there now, there's this idea that, that, that your metabolism is this really simple engine kind of thing. You can, you can rev it up, take your foot off the gas and you are, you're in control. If you wanted to, to burn more calories, you can go out there and exercise. If you want to burn, you know, if you want to eat less and just lose weight, it's as easy as just eating less. And that's a really simplistic way to think about how your body uses energy. The Hadza data um, and other populations too, not just the Hadza and other species too, for that matter, say that actually it's really hard to move energy expenditure around very much. You can be as active as you want to be. And people with active lifestyles do not burn more calories than people with sedentary lifestyles. It just isn't, the data just don't show that at all. Um, you can start an exercise program tomorrow and a year from now, your energy expenditure will probably be about what it was before you started after your body adapts to that new exercise program. So it's really hard, actually, to, to put your foot on the accelerator and rev your engine up, right? That doesn't really happen because you're not an engine. You are an evolved metabolism. On the other side of that, it's actually also hard to lose weight by just taking energy away and not eating because your body, guess what? It's dynamic and adaptive and it goes, holy cow, we're starving put the brakes and everything, spend less energy wherever you can, you can save it. And so, you know, the father Gill biggest loser study shows that very nicely that if you starve people, they burn few, that their body responds by burning fewer calories. We actually known that for a long time. The Hadza stuff says actually, and on the other side of it, you can be more active. That doesn't work either. You're not going to burn more calories being more active. And so instead, you know, when we think about obesity, which is fundamentally a problem of eating more calories than you burn, it's, it's actually really hard to change your weight because your body does these adaptive uh, dynamic things. Well, you know, is that news? Somehow it is, right? We've actually known how hard it is to lose weight for forever. So uh, maybe it's not news that it's hard to lose weight, but but I think it changes the way you think about that because if you you know if you look at the public health fact sheets today, World Health Organization, CDC, they'll all tell you the same thing, which is if you want to lose weight, you have to exercise more and watch your diet. Well, exercising more isn't going to help. And watching your diet's harder than you think, right? Because you, I think there's also this framing of obesity as sort of personal failure, right? Mm -hmm. You're you're overweight because you have failed as a as your willpower wasn't strong enough or whatever. And this says no, it's actually really hard to make these metabolic adjustments. And then um, I want to interject with a brief note about the Fothergill paper that not only did their metabolisms tank yeah. after losing all the weight, they didn't go back up once they started gaining weight. So it didn't actually. This again, as bodies get larger, metabolic rate goes up, they didn't mm. return to their previous metabolic rate and they were still in a depressed level, making that weight gain, if I remember right. So there's a great figure in that paper. There's a great figure in that paper that said, that shows the amount of metabolic adaptation versus their net change in weight since before the Biggest Loser started. And people, the contestants who are closest back to their net weight show the least amount of metabolic adaptation because their bodies, in my opinion, their bodies are saying, ah, we're finally back. We can relax. Um, but you're right. It's, it's uh, it, If you did keep your weight down after six years or whatever it was, if you did manage to do that, you still had metabolic adaptation. Your body never said, oh, okay, I guess this is the new normal. Your body never says that. Obesity is a really hard topic. I think the idea that, you know, that, that we can, can control our metabolism to change our weight is really a non-starter. Doesn't actually not how it works. Um, your, you know, your metabolism responds to weight change. It doesn't dictate weight change. Yeah. And so it's been really fun, you know, it's really been satisfying scientifically in my career to like be able to take this Hadza work and see it applied to this a real world issue. It's also been surprising how much people kind of still push back and still, I think, misunderstand that. And uh, yeah, you'd think this is all sort of stuff that had been sorted out decades ago, but it, it's still fresh. I find some of the more obvious things 
that come up in science, my work and others' work is the most sort of provocative. Uh, and I think part of it is people understand it. So they, they gravitate toward it, whether it's yeah. groundbreaking or not. I want to ask you a question in sort of a different way than we framed it, right? I'm, I'm going to say you guys who do energetics research. And in my brain, I'm thinking about Tom Brutzart, who also trained me. I'm talking about Kara, who I talk to about all the time, Dan, mm -hmm. who we had on a show previously. One of the great insights that I get from reading y'all's work is by then also looking at and listening and paying attention to what you guys do personally do as energetics folks, Dan's descriptions of his own exercise re regimes in comparison to the populations he's worked with and mm -hmm. and all that is, is very illustrative. I wonder for you, the takeaway from your own book, like how does that apply to your life? What does your energetics expenditure look like in your own life? How do you reflect or mirror your own work? Well, I'll say this, you know, I've been the same weight since college and I haven't had to try very hard at that. And there are folks like us who are lucky like that, you know, I will know what I'm talking about. And I used to think about that as a reflection of good living. <laughs> And now I look at that as a reflection of just having been dealt a pretty lucky hand genetically. And, and, you know, not to, it's not all genes, but I think that's a big piece of it. I try to eat, you know, well, I try to avoid processed foods. And that's actually even before the Hadza stuff, but now certainly after that, knowing how important diet is for weight, I try to really watch that. You know, I'm in my 40s now and I have seen... Now, I don't think my energy expenditures actually change that much, but it does feel different. It feels different to be 40 than it does to be 30. I'll tell you that. So diet's become more important to me. For exercise, I've always enjoyed getting outside and exercising. That's actually never been a chore for me. I like to run. I like to, to climb, rock climbing and mountaineering, but I I've been doing less of that in COVID times. You can't go to the climbing gym as well and stay in shape that way because turns out that's a bad idea in, in, during a pandemic, you know, mountain biking. If I can get outside and get moving, that's a good day. You know, even if it's just like, kind of walking around the woods with my kids. So that's what I do. I just try to get active and and, and watch what I eat, but not in any kind of, you know, I don't have like a, a, a strict diet that I adhere to or anything like that. It's just uh, try to eat healthy. So I'm curious what you see as a takeaway from your book that others might take away. Would it, would it be a life-changing type of thing? Well, first of all, I think diet and exercise are two different tools for two different jobs. That's one of the take-homes, I think. You got to watch your diet if you want to watch your weight and you need to exercise for everything else. You know, keeping yourself healthy, keeping your mind sharp as you age. I know you guys talked to Dave Reichland a few months ago. I mean, I think that stuff's really compelling. Keeping your heart healthy. Dan's book talks about all the reasons that you have to exercise. You know, so there are two different tools for two different jobs. That said, you know, I think this prescriptive, oh, you have to do this diet. You have to do that exercise regime. And this is the rules, you know. Look, if you are the kind of person who really likes that structure and that motivates you to stay with it, you know, to, to gamify it and make it, you know, you, you, you check all your boxes or close all your rings or whatever it is each day. Hey, that's awesome. If that works for you, fantastic. But for a lot of us, you know, my schedule day to day and week to week, it changes all the time. And so just knowing like, oh, I'm just going to try to get outside and, and move today. And, and that might be a run or a bike ride or whatever, and just do it, you know, kind of let yourself off the hook a little bit and then just try to be active, you know, diet wise, oh, avoid carbs, avoid fats. Well, Look, if you're eating whole foods, if you're eating whole vegetables and meats and stuff that, you know, what's the Michael Pollan thing, food that your grandparents would recognize? I, you know, I think you're you're off to a pretty good start. And if it's not working for you, then 
okay, then try to put more fiber and protein in your diet because we those fill you up. I mean, it's, it's the principles thing. It's principles approach other than this kind of magic bullet uh, snake oil approach. I think if people can bring that at home from my book, that's awesome if I would help you know add that to the conversation. There's other people saying that too. Principles of these things rather than this prescriptive line by line way to live your life. I think our listeners are probably hoping right now that their grandparents know little Debbie. <laughs> <laughs> they might. I mean, depends on the age of our listeners, which I think skews younger anyway. So... Yeah, okay, great grandparents then. Great grandparents. <laughs> that's changing these days. Well, so, you know, here's the best way to do it. If you go shopping, first of all, you know, you should shop at supermarkets and, and cook your own food. That's a good way to avoid, pretty good way to stay, stay healthy because um, you know what you're eating. And then secondly, you know, what's the, the advice is to shop around the outside of the supermarket, mm-hmm. right? The vegetable aisle, the meat aisle, the bread and dairy aisle, and stay out of the, the packaged, you know, if it has a mascot and an advertising campaign, it's probably not the best for you. <laughs> uh, so, you know, little Debbie. That's the new sorry. dietary rule. If the food has a mascot, avoid it. Yes. You should contact the uh, the USDA <laughs> to include right. that in their new guideline. Well, the ultra processed food stuff is so scary. You know, I mean, it's uh, that's been super enlightening. You guys should, should, if you haven't, you know, the, the Kevin Hall stuff with the Biggest Loser is really cool. But his other work, looking at these inpatient diet studies, you feed somebody an ultra processed diet, and after two weeks, they've already gained like three pounds, and it's all mm-hmm. fat. And, you know, and it's the same, they, they match the diets for, you know, carb content and fat content and all this stuff. And it's the same diet that on paper, if you look at how many carbs and fats and proteins, whatever, it looks the same, mm-hmm. but it's this ultra processed stuff. And your body goes, your brain says, absolutely. Let's have more of that. Huh. The next thing you know, you're done. You know, I think that's the mismatch. Talk about mismatch diseases. That's the mismatch. We didn't evolve with engineered focused tested foods that are literally designed to be overeaten. Because guess what? That's how Little Debbie sells you more Little Debbies. Anyways, what's next? Are you doing more work with the Hadza? I know you've been doing some work with the Schwar, and I know you've also been doing some work with uh, Asher Rossinger. So what's on the horizon? Yeah, more, more <laughs> and more and more. We're gonna we're, we're expanding to look at different populations. We have a pipe study going on with uh, Dasnich pa- population of pastoralists, uh, their, their pastoralist community up in northern Tanzania, uh, northern Kenya. Sorry, other you know collaborations going on. So more of the same kind of human ecology, the intersection of, of ecology and evolution and and, and health. Uh, m- more work in that space. One thing we're really trying to track down is you know as you get more and more physically active, it seems like the body is turning the other, you know, suppressing other systems. And to actually watch that happen and measure that happening and see how that happens, I think that's the next frontier for me is, is doing that kind of more detailed work as well. So we're going to try to do some longitudinal studies where we get people exercising more and see how their body responds. And, you know, I, I had a lot of fun writing this book, so maybe we'll write another book. I, I love what I do, so I'll just keep doing more of it as long as they let me. And as part of those projects and moving forward, do you have any, obviously we're promoting your book, that's clear here, but do you have anything yeah. else that you want to promote or advertise? And I believe you have a postdoc position opening up that you're accepting applicants for as well. For those of you who would like to work in this area and, you know, you don't have to have done a whole lot of this work before. If your interest is there, please do apply. Applications are due at the end of March. So get them in. Love to hear from you. For anybody who's, for everybody else, and for those guys too, if you want to hear more about the Hadza or, you know, just kind of see how we balance, you know, research versus giving back, that this is me and Brian Wood and Dave Reichlin and some other collaborators, Hadza Fund org is a great way to see kind of how we we strike that balance, um, trying to give back as well as as you know doing work there and with them and having them lead those efforts. And if you have the if you feel like donating some money to the uh, Hadza Ambulance Fund, we run a Bush Ambulance, so um, you will be welcome to do that too. Are y'all the? Uh, I think Hadza Fund has got some social media accounts too. Is that you guys running that or? That's me. That's me uh, trying to remember to do that. 
<laughs> we are also people who run multiple social media accounts and it gets really hard yeah. to balance that. But I also looked, yeah. so your personal Twitter uh, is at Herman Ponser and I can also find the uh, the Hadza Fund one as well. I think it's just at Hadza Fund. It is, right? it is at Hadza Fund. So nice and easy to remember. So is there any time left in uh, the Ponser family life for non, uh, I don't know how you guys could avoid, possibly avoid your topic in anything you do because it's just resplendent in daily life. We always, we ask this question like what do people do for fun and then people oh, are yeah. guilty about saying I like to read anthropology for fun. So like we just want to know more about you. What's your life like at home? I've got two kids, Alex and Clara, eight and six, who are, you know, especially during the plague here, they're like 99% of my day is hanging out with my kids, which is awesome. Um, and also, you know, a little bit of an, of an overdose situation, but that's okay. Uh, they're in online school, so they're they're zooming it up too. Um, hanging out with them, my wife Janice, who's wonderful, hanging out with everybody and, and trying to get outside and we used to like to travel a lot i remember when we used to travel we used to like to just casually go and get ice cream without worrying about dying remember that remember so remember we're gonna get back to that kind of stuff someday yeah. um but you know living in durham north carolina well, sorry i live in, in chapel hill but, but the durham chapel hill area there's so much good green space you can get outside you can go to the mountains pretty quick you can go to the beach pretty quick so get outside as much as i can i like to will you know workshop wood shop kind of stuff i, I built our a dining room table and a patio and a couple other little projects here during COVID. So, nice. you know, try to keep busy and, and do not anthropology for some substantial portion of my week. Because yeah. I think, you know, if you don't get out of it and let yourself kind of cleanse, at least me anyway, then when yeah, I never kind of, you never have that, that freshness. So, you know, you got to keep it fresh, man. I, I find lately that I am so burned out on the pandemic and Zooming that I'm pretty much doing all those things I think more like more like 80% of the time I'm like, what else can I build from this wood? But I wanted to, I wanted to interject a new question. Yeah. What are you looking forward to most after the pandemic is over? Travel. You know, I love that about our jobs. I don't know how much you guys have traveled before the pandemic. I know you know, a bunch, I know for Kara, probably for you too, Chris, but um, you know, I just love that part of it. And I love just the casually being able to get outside and go around and, and, and man, I miss that, you know? So we'll do more of that when we get on the other side of this and just being able to that, but also like there's the casual small scale stuff, going to a bar and having a beer after work kind of thing. You know, I can't do that anymore either. So I think from the big end to the small end of, of, of that kind of interactions, I'm, I'm looking forward to both of it, both ends. I'm missing the small interactions most because the pandemic hit less than six months into the new job at Notre Dame. And so oh. I like, I don't have friends here because I didn't really get a chance to establish yeah. relationships before everything got locked down. Nobody um, tells you that when you start a new job, especially in academia, mm -hmm. but it is so lonely. Yeah. It is so lonely because mm -hmm. uh, anthro departments usually aren't that big. Everybody's busy with their own things. Um, you're used to grad school where you were hanging out with the same group of friends, you know, every day. And it felt like, you know, I loved grad school and I still have so many good friendships from then. And yeah, I kind of thought that, you know, I didn't do a postdoc. I, I went from, uh, from grad school to, to wash you as an assistant professor. And I kind of thought that would be, it would feel like grad school for old people and it nope. didn't at all. <laughs> and it was really, uh, so if you're, if you're out there and you're a first year prof somewhere, uh, and you're feeling stressed and lonely, I'm sorry, know that it's it's actually pretty normal and it's, and it's going to be, you come out the other side of it, just hang in there. It does get better at some point. It does get better. But yeah, Herman, thank you so, so much for, for taking a lot of time 
uh, actually for this interview today. We really did enjoy it and we both enjoyed your book, which again is coming out March 2nd. You can pre-order if you are jumping the gun on this one, which I think this is coming out next week. Yeah, next right? uh, week from today, and, burn. But also, this, uh, also the interview is coming out next week and it we oh. might hit either on the day of release or the day before release. We'll see okay. how it goes. <laughs> All right. Very we tried cool. to time Very it cool. right just for that. But, I appreciate uh, it. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so, so much. We really enjoyed having you on. Thank you. It was so fun. <laughs>